This is News Underground. An estimated 150,000 Russian troops have massed along the border with Ukraine, sparking a geopolitical crisis in Europe not seen since the Cold War. While President Biden and the leaders of several European nations have attempted to de-escalate the crisis, Russian leader Vladimir Putin continues to press for a number of demands, including barring Ukraine from joining the North American Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO, and using his military in a game of brinkmanship. Several news reports suggested that Putin was set to invade Ukraine today on February 16th, even as Moscow announced they were pulling back some troops from the border, although Western nations and Ukraine remain on high alert. Here to discuss the situation is John O'Loughlin, a professor of geography at CU Boulder, who studies Ukrainian geopolitics and is interested in the spatial and territorial aspects of conflict. Professor O'Loughlin has worked in the former Soviet Union on changing geopolitical orientations, on territorial separatism and its consequences. Professor O'Loughlin, thanks so much for joining us this evening. You're welcome. Um, my first question is, what is the situation as you see it right now? Sort of a broad question. Um, I think we're waiting to see what happens. I think um, the so-called pullback doesn't seem to be either significant or um, it doesn't seem to be more than moving troops from one area near the border with Ukraine to another area near the border of Ukraine. So the skepticism is warranted in terms of a, any kind of significant pullback. Um, I have felt for a long time that this was sort of a game of chicken between the US and led NATO alliance and uh, Russia and basically see who blinks first. Um, it is clear that nobody knows really what Putin is going to do eventually. Um, there are lots of guesses, um, but with a lot of uh, past behavior from Putin, uh, a lot of those guesses have been wrong. So uh, right now, my thinking is that um, it's still more likely than not, there will be some kind of military action um, in the next couple of weeks. But the scale of it and the direction um, is uncertain. Um, but I think Putin is absolutely adamant that um, Ukraine not join NATO. And I think he's willing to risk everything to prevent that. For him, uh, as he has said numerous times, the red line has been crossed and it's time to uh, kind of finalize this, this issue. Um, and I think he believes that while he's in office and while the conditions are as good as they're going to be from his perspective, um, in terms of his um, prestige, his power, his popularity, but also his military preparedness, all of those things mean that he feels like he has to take action now. So it is a kind of a crisis point. Um, and I think it could easily uh, erupt into violence. Obviously, I hope it doesn't, but I'm not terribly optimistic. To go along the lines of what um, what President Vladimir Putin is 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 thinking, how does, in your estimation, how does President Putin view Ukraine as a nation? Um, well, he doesn't. I mean, that's the whole the whole point. I mean, he has written uh, quite extensively, and um, he's also talked a lot in his speeches about the uh, relationship between Russia and Ukraine. You must understand from his perspective. Um, that Russia and Ukraine are essentially one brotherhood. And he believes that uh, with Belarus, the three countries um, have the sim a similar origin, right? They're all uh, essentially uh, descendants of uh, Kievan Rus, um, you know, a, a kingdom in centralized uh, in Kiev, 
uh, well over a thousand years ago. And um, he believes that, um, like many Russians do, that Ukrainians are, in a sense, um, a sort of um, fraternal brother of, of Russia. So he, I don't think he really has understood the whole Ukrainian nationalization project. And I don't think he believes that it's necessary. Um, so for him, it's, I think, a bit of a puzzle, frankly. Um, and again, like most um, Russians, I'm sure, in the past he had you know, close relations with Ukrainians uh, during Soviet times and later. And, and there's a huge level of intermarriage uh, and contacts between Russians and Ukrainians. So for many Russians, uh, this whole idea of Ukraine not being connected to Russia, but being more connected to Europe and to the North Atlantic uh, countries of Canada and the US and so on is really a huge puzzle. Um, so, you know, he, he wrote this long um, expression of why Russians and Ukrainians are basically the same people this past summer and was didn't really convince very many people in Ukraine because uh, for most Ukrainians, they are doing what other European countries did in the um, 19th and 20th century. And that is building a nation uh, out of um, kind of imperial, almost colonial relationship uh, with Russia. So just as Poland uh, formed their uh, national project in the early 20th century and broke away from the Russian empire and from the German empire and the Austro-Hungarian empire even, uh, that's what Ukrainians are doing now. So just a bit later because of the uh, Soviet you know, 70 years of control. So, I mean, I, I think the generous um, explanation of Putin's actions is uh, that he is just really um, amazed <laughs> that he's dealing with Ukraine as a separate and different place. Um, the not so generous interpretation is that what he sees going on in Ukraine as a country that is very much westernizing and um, democratizing is a real threat to uh, his vision of what Russia should be. So he's just trying to remove that threat on Russia's borders. You've done some research on Ukrainian political and geopolitical preferences. Um, you were interviewed by uh, CU Today a couple of weeks ago. Um, on the flip side of the question, how do Ukrainian citizens view, view their nation? And I know it's a little bit complicated because you have Ukrainians who live in Kiev and Lvov versus maybe the Donbass region. So how do they view their nation as a, as a whole? Well, that's the whole, um, the whole point of the research I do, which is to try and explain the complexity inside Ukraine. Um, so there are three, let's call them, demographic uh, linguistic um, subsets of uh, Ukrainians, right? So there are Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian who are mostly in the West, right? And there are Ukrainians who speak Russian who are predominantly in the center, somewhat in the south and east. And then there is the kind of Russian um, national and linguistic minority, right? Which is around 12% uh, of the population concentrated in the south and east and of course in Crimea in the past. And there is a huge west to east gradient in Ukraine in terms of affiliation with the west and looking to the west uh, in the western part of Ukraine in Lviv. You said Lvov, which is the Russian uh, spelling and pronunciation. Um, and other places in, in that part of the country. And then, of course, in the south and east, in uh, Don, Donbass um, and certainly in Crimea, it's a very Russified area and very closely tied to Russia, both uh, demographically, economically, politically, culturally. And so that divide 
um, in Ukraine is, is serious. Uh, it's reflected in very clear um, political maps. Um, and it's also very clear in terms of geopolitical preferences. So we have asked uh, in numerous large public opinion polls across Ukraine, where do people want Ukraine to be on this kind of West to Russia scale? And um, it turns out that if you were to kind of divide it into three categories, looking to the West, sort of in the middle of that spectrum and looking to the East, the plurality of people, not a majority, but you know, a large minority uh, want to be in the middle, like somewhere between the West and, um, and Russia, with obviously uh, some leaning towards the West and some leaning towards the East, but it has a real um, geographic um, expression so that, you know, the Westernizers are in the West, the people, the, the more Russian oriented are in the East. And those who uh, want to kind of sit between the two poles are in the middle of the country. So the geography, the political geography of the country reflects the uh, geopolitical orientations. Um, so the other thing I, I want to point out about Ukraine, which a lot of people um, have sort of forgotten, is that um, because uh, right now there's a lot of polls that show a majority of people in Ukraine want to be uh, part of NATO but realize that those polls are only done in the parts of Ukraine that the government controls. So it excludes the huge population centers in the Donbass, in the People's Republics, as well as in Crimea. So, you know, on the one hand, the government is saying they're part of uh, Ukraine, we refuse to accept that they're not. But on the other hand, the pollsters don't poll there. And so they're only looking at the, um, let's say, an artificially high level of support for uh, NATO, because if those two areas were included in national polls, I certainly it wouldn't be a majority of the whole country. Um, a question about your work, and I know you've touched on a little bit with some of the polling that you've done. Um, can you tell us, and I, obviously it's been a broad spectrum of work that you've been doing, but uh, just a little bit more about your work and just the former Soviet Union in general um, and, and what, what that's looked like over the last number of years, some of, some of the things that you've been doing. Yeah, um, I started working uh, in the former Soviet Union in the early 90s when fieldwork became possible. It wasn't obviously possible for um, non-Soviet scholars to kind of wander around the country and interview people and do fieldwork. So that only became possible after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then I started working closely with a, a very close colleague, uh, Vladimir Kolosov, who's at the Russian Academy of Sciences. And together, we began to look at the initially the border questions, um, you know, because when the Soviet Union broke up, you know, the borders weren't marked on the ground and, and the border posts and the border guards and all the rest of it, that whole structure didn't exist. So we were uh, literally on the ground in uh, Eastern Ukraine in, in the early nineties, looking at how this uh, border borderization process was uh, being undertaken, including in, in Donetsk and um, Lugansk uh, Oblast uh, on the border with Russia. And now those places, of course, are at the cockpit of current uh, crises. Um, as part of the research at the time, uh, we did a lot of interviews in Donetsk um, with people, um, you know, who all of a sudden, you know, were in a different country uh, from what they had been before, and a lot of research about their attitudes towards the new uh, regime in Kiev. And it was clear to me then, and this is, you know, 94, 95, that there was huge resentment um, in that area about what was going on in Kiev in terms of the promotion of the Ukrainian language, the downgrading of the Russian language, the um, view of the Donbass as sort of a, an economic um, 
region that that essentially owed Ukraine uh, a lot of revenue, but not really uh, taking it, um, you know, in a way that would um, kind of bring it into the rest of Ukraine. It just it felt very, for people there, very exploitative. And um, so it didn't surprise me at all in many ways that when um, the Maidan revolution happened in Kiev in 2013-14, in that there would be a significant um, outburst of uh, separatism in the Donbass. That was absolutely um, something that I had thought if there was ever a more national, nationalistic regime, a more Western-oriented regime in Kiev, that there would be a reaction in Crimea and Donbass, and that's exactly what happened. So you have to remember that between the independence of Ukraine in the early 90s, in 91, up to the um, 2005 Orange Revolution, and then kind of a period of stability, um, but up to Maidan, the presidencies and the governments in, in Kiev were not um, antagonistic towards the East. But then after Maidan, after the election of Poroshenko, then you have this very strong push um, towards the West, towards the, joining the EU and NATO. And that produced a very strong reaction in, uh, in Donetsk and uh, Luhansk. And then also, of course, in Crimea, which was annexed to Russia in, in March of 2014. Uh, that's only part of my research. A lot of the other research is on other conflict areas of the former Soviet Union, especially in the Caucasus, um, in the North Caucasus of Russia, but also in the South Caucasus. Uh, with a special interest in what are called de facto states. And these are the separatist regions that have um, broken away from their parent states. So um, the two places in Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and then Transnistria, uh, break away from Moldova, and then Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, break away from Azerbaijan. So I've traveled extensively in those places, done lots of surveys. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a political geography on the ground, uh, looking at how, um, new borders are created by separatism and how they're marked and then how people who live in those places kind of carry on their lives um, in an environment in which they have kind of no international political rec recognition but depend completely on Russia for, for support militarily, politically and economically. Have you been in touch with former colleagues and, and friends in the Ukraine during this period of time? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, they. It's uh, it's a very touchy subject. You can imagine um, the the Ukrainian government believes that some of the work I do um, is illegitimate, and uh, I've gotten heavily criticized by the government, especially in foreign affairs. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I wrote an article about Crimea, and I had surveyed in Crimea and showed that there was strong support for um, you know the annexation to Russia and um, for people felt that their lives had improved significantly after they had left uh, Ukraine. Anyway, the Ukrainian foreign minister wrote a rebuttal and, uh, you know, basically said, hey, you shouldn't be doing this work. It's an occupied territory. And, uh, you know, scholarly work is not reliable. People are frightened, afraid, and won't tell you truthful answers. Um, but actually, just uh, this past uh, month in January, we did an enormous survey in Donbass uh, in both sides of the line of control, that is on the government, Kiev government side um, of the Western part of the Donbass area, and then in the separatist republics. And uh, we have the first article actually coming out tomorrow morning in the Washington Post about this. Um, 
and then uh, we're giving a big presentation next week at the Kennan Institute. And my guess is this, this the results won't be um, welcomed in Kiev because um, we showed in the article tomorrow morning that most people uh, in the Donbass, both on both sides of the line, uh, over 50% uh, said, yes, I agree to a prompt that said, I don't care what country I live in as long as I have a good income and a decent pension later. So people basically are saying, we don't care if we're in Ukraine or Russia, all we care about is a decent life. And that's not the kind of message that the uh, Kiev government wants to hear. So I've been in contact, close contact with the survey companies uh, in Kiev. Uh, they report that things are tense, but so far calm and there's no panic. Although people obviously have their eyes closely on the border and you know, what's going to happen. Um, but I know, you know, from talking to uh, Russian colleagues, especially their friendships, their um, collegial relationships, which had developed during Soviet times, you know, because, you know, they were all part of the same country. A lot of those scholarly uh, contacts and relationships have broken down completely. And uh, it's much to the regret anyway of the Russian colleagues, but there is a, um, it's, it's natural, it's understandable um, because um, there's a real suspicion of um, any, anything Russian um, in much of Ukraine. In fact, Russian men on, under the age of 60 are banned from traveling to Ukraine even though many have relationships and family members and so on in Ukraine. And finally, is, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about what you've been thinking about this subject, about this crisis? Um, it's potentially, I mean, in the, in the worst case scenario, it's awful. Um, potentially it could lead to a massive um, conflict uh, with, you know, tens of thousands of lives lost and, millions of people uh, displaced refugees probably going to Poland and to other parts of Europe. Um, so for Ukrainians, um, this would be an unmitigated disaster. It would also be a disaster because uh, it's very clear that uh, Ukraine, Ukrainians are going to fight. And so there will be significant casualties on the Russian side as well. Uh, I'm sure Putin has figured this out that, um, you know, the scale of the attack will produce uh, a similar uh, reaction in terms of the scale of casualties on the Russian side. But he thinks that the issue is so important for Russia's kind of permanent security that he's, I think, willing to uh, risk it, or at least he seems to be willing to risk it. The other thing that, of course, is going to happen is there's going to be a significant short economic shock uh, in terms of global oil prices are going to skyrocket. Um, there's going to be a almost a complete break in economic relations between Europe and uh, Russia. Um, and I think, um, it, I mean, a lot depends on how NATO reacts, but if um, in, the, in the very, very worst case scenario, it would come to a confrontation between Russia and uh, NATO forces, and that would be the, the worst scenario of all. So far, NATO has said they're not going to get involved on the ground in Ukraine. But there, uh, is, there are significant numbers of NATO uh, trainers of uh, Ukrainians and uh, lots and lots of weapons. So, you know, I know some people uh, in the US in, uh, want Russia to kind of get bogged down into a long war in Ukraine, like the Soviets were in Afghanistan, like Americans were in Afghanistan later. But they are, um, that's a kind of, in my view, an immoral position um, because it would just lead to a massive 
loss of life um, and over many, many years and just the complete destruction of Ukrainian society. So I don't know how anybody could support that, but obviously that's the way some people are thinking. So yeah, I'm not a terribly optimistic person right now, but my optimism and pessimism tend to uh, fluctuate day by day. So, you know, maybe tomorrow I'd be more optimistic, but uh, right now I'm pretty pessimistic. And uh, I suppose if a conflict happens, um, you have to hope uh, that it would be a short and, um, you know, the loss of life would not be as massive as I think it's going to be. Professor Laughlin, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us tonight. Okay, you're great. You're welcome.